0: Thanks, man. Yikes. How do I live up to that? Dave's been a real example to me, too, so thanks, Dave. Let me just pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and for uh, using people who are broken and uh, loving, Lord Jesus, the, those who have no reason to be loved. Uh, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Speak to us today, Jesus, in your name. Amen. In the early 80s, I got a phone call, I was in high school, and a friend of mine called me up, his name is Dermot McCarthy, and Dermot was very Irish, if you can get by the name, his mom was from Ireland, and he said, you got to come over, you got to see this. So he lived one block north of me, so I ran up to his house, went into his living room, he says, you got to look at this. And on the TV screen was MTV, and it was brand new, and I'd never seen it before, we didn't have cable or cool things at my house, so I always had to go to somebody else's house to see those things. And so he's got MTV there, and he's just like, look at this. This is crazy. Like songs and videos put together. Uh, and we, we sat there and we watched it. And then all of a sudden, this band came up on, on the thing, and, and he got really excited by it. Uh, and the reason he got really excited about it, they're an Irish band. And there weren't a whole lot of Irish bands, you know. And his, I mean, his mom, I mean, she was from Ireland. So she, like, they were just, he was flipping out. There was this Irish band playing. I'll never forget it, it was like, they were singing kind of like quasi-Christian lyrics, and so I was a new Christian, so I was kind of into it, and, and he was really into it, you know? And so I became a fan. I became a fan of this band called U2. In fact, I think on the way down, I heard one of their songs on my playlist this morning, you know? And, and so I, I enjoyed the band. I bought some of their cassettes. <laughs> Boy, this guy's old. And CDs when they came out. I went to a concert once. I'll never forget going to the concert. It was at the uh, Hartford Civic Center. Someone gave us free tickets. I went to see them, and it was, it was like, you know, crazy packed, and everyone's going nuts. And I remember looking around the couch going, these people are a little too in. This is just a bunch of dudes singing some songs. Like, people got really into it, you know? And uh, so, you know, so I was a fan. I listened to their music. I had some of their, their CDs and cassettes, and that's one thing. So I had another friend in college, and he followed a different band, all right? Uh, I don't know. You know what this is? You know what this person is? Anybody know? You know what they're called? Anybody know what this person's called? Deadhead. Deadhead. Right, thank you. Somebody's old like me. Um, the Deadheads. And I had a friend who, who followed... See, he, didn't, he wasn't a fan of the Grateful Dead. He followed the Grateful Dead, literally, all across the country. It, they changed his dress. They changed his mindset, which included a lot of hallucinogenic drugs. You know, I mean, he was... He was ev- the music and everything, and he would go to these dead concerts all over the country. He'd follow the band, take his entire summer. He wasn't a fan. He was a follower of the Grateful Dead. It transformed his persona, his dress, everything about him. And, and I remember, I never think anybody at a Grateful Dead concert will look at another deadhead and go, they're a little too into it. They would have competitions of who was more into it and who was more dedicated to, to follow the band all over. And see, there was a real difference. I, I was a fan. He was a follower. I want to talk to you about that this morning. So if you grab your Bibles, whatever app you have, whatever piece of paper you have in front of you, we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. We're just going to talk about the difference between being a fan and a follower. And this is really the initiation of Jesus' public ministry in the, in the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark hits the ground running. He doesn't, he doesn't spend any time at Christmas. He gets right into the ministry of Jesus. And Mark 1, 14 uh, to 20 Mark 1.14 says this, now after John was arrested, so like the ministry of John has kind of passed and now Jesus is kind of in the forefront, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, right? And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew and the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. I just got three words I want to talk to you this morning about. Three words. First word is repent. Right? Repent. Repent. Jesus says, repent. That's like the first thing. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand, and repent, that's the response to the kingdom of God being here. And it's interesting, if you go back just a little bit, you know, John the Baptist, if you read some of his sermons, what was his big theme? Repent. And you go back in the Old Testament, and you see the prophets, and what was their big theme? Repentance. And Jesus comes, he doesn't change that. He starts off with it. And repentance, just understand, repentance and confession are a little different, okay? Repentance says, confession says I'm wrong and God's right. That's like a, a verbal understanding. Confession could be negative or positive, right? You could say you confess Jesus is Lord or you confess you're a sinner, right? Confession is kind of a, an agreement with the truth of who God is and what He said about you. Repentance is a turning, right? I, I don't know if I can do this, but it's in the military. My son's in the army, but I'm not. Well, I'm in the Lord's army. But repentance is about faith, right? So I'm going in this way. I'm doing these things. And what Jesus is telling people to turn around, to to completely 180 degrees turn around from the way you're going. And so to do that, you have to admit what? You're wrong. So the first message of Jesus, the King of God's here, guess what? You're wrong. You're going in the wrong direction. Uh, People don't always like that. They want to hear, oh, no, I'm good, I'm okay. No, no, you're wrong. Your life is going in this direction, and you need to be going in that direction. You need to completely change your way of thinking. Later on in Luke 13, he talks to people who are trying to get Jesus hooked into current events. There's one couple times Jesus is trying to be, they're trying to hook him into talk about current events. And Jesus seems to always avoid it. And he talks about a current event situation in Luke 13. And, and he's talking about people that suffered and did they suffer because they were worse sinners than other people. And Jesus says, and you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. His response is, don't worry about what they did. Worry about where you're going. You need to repent. He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So people think, okay, repentance is for non-Christians, right? So non-Christians are are the ones that are evil and not following God. And so I become a Christian, I repent, I turn around, I follow God, and that's good. And Christians really don't have to worry about the word repent. You know, it's interesting to me, I was thinking about that, and where in the Bible does it tell Christians to repent? And you know, Jesus speaks to seven churches in Revelation, right? Right? Seven churches. Now, our thought of the early churches, they were persecuted. Man, they were the first church. They saw miracles. They saw the apostles. They must be the best churches. Okay, of those seven churches, two he's got nothing bad to say about. Two of those seven churches. Now, you perfectionists out there, imagine that. Jesus stands before a church and he's got nothing bad to say about. Five of those churches, or two of them he's got nothing good to say about, okay, and three have got our mixed bag. But of the five churches that have something wrong with them, every one of them, he says, repent. Repent isn't a word for just non-Christians. Repent is a word for any Christian, anybody, who's doing something in their life they shouldn't be doing. is going contrary to what God wants. I went to a men's retreat uh, a month ago, and we were on this retreat, and, and he, the guy was really heavily hitting uh, repentance, and he was a pastor, who had committed adultery, he had got all these horrible things, and he repented and got got right. And then he was the speaker. And he kind of challenged everyone to repent, to repent of everything. And he he really got into our thought life and said, Man, you better have scripture, you better have your thoughts better be right before God. He really challenged me to say, Man, John, look at your thought life. Is 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 if someone were to open up your brain and, and see what you're thinking about on a regular basis. What would they see? God sees that. And I came back, and, and God really worked in my life, and I was, I was saying, man, I want to get my thoughts right. I want to get my thinking straight. So I had, to, I had to change some habits that I had and some thought patterns that came into my head. I have to change that. It wasn't just a matter of confessing, you're right, I, I got some, I'm not always thinking the right things. It was, no, I have to change some things. I had to turn around. So I got back from this retreat, and, and two days later I get a phone call From a guy whose wife just caught him doing something he shouldn't be doing. And he's just weeping and broken. And so I was able to share, this is about repentance. You got to do whatever it takes. Not half. You you write a blank check. You sign your name on a blank check and you hand it to your wife. And you hand it to me as a pastor. And I'm going to tell you what you got to do. And you cannot make any excuses. You cannot You cannot do anything. And I'm telling you, he came into my office. I had five things for him to do. Three of them he was already doing. And every time he's tempted to kind of, I said, you got a blank check to your wife and you got a blank check to your pastor and you call me every day and you start taking steps in the right direction. Can I tell you, in two weeks, three weeks, this guy's experiencing victory he's never experienced before. Why? He didn't just confess his sin. He repented of it. And took action to turn his life around and go in the right direction. Here's a quote I have. There is no hope for a person who thinks highly of themselves. If you think you're pretty great, no hope for you. Because Jesus starts with repent. He didn't say, okay, bad people repent and good people, uh, you, you're over here. He says, repent. There's no hope for a person who thinks highly of themselves. Do you think you're pretty good? You think you're a pretty decent person? You're comparing yourselves to other people. You know that, right? Because if you're pretty good, you have to compare yourself to Christ, and and you have to see who you are. And, I don't know about you, but but I love what C.S. Lewis says, is nobody knows how bad they are until they try very hard to be good. You try to take every thought captive. You try to make sure every word that comes out of your mouth, you try to check your motives for doing good. You start living in a big family, right? Every time I added a member to my family, it was like God was telling me how bad I was, Right? If you're single or if you're living in a nice little marriage, you live by yourself, I get it. You can probably get along and be okay. And you throw yourself a bunch of kids in there. You throw a bunch of people in your life, in-laws. You go on a family vacation, man. You you learn how selfish and evil you are. There's no hope. There's no hope for people. And you know, there's no hope for lost people who don't know they're lost. There's no hope for people who don't understand. They don't have the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Man, I'm broken. There's something broken inside me. How in touch with you are your own brokenness? And so the first thing I'd like to, it's the part of being a follower of Christ is you first have to admit that you are not going in the right direction, that you're, you, you need help. You need to change. And that's repent. He then says believe. And believe is a simple word. It means just to accept that Jesus is true, right? And James has been teaching us, if you guys are going through the book of James, that there's a different kind of understanding of the word believe, right? Believe means faith. And so Jesus, you have to have faith, right? He says, "He says, repent and believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Repent and believe." So we have to believe that Jesus is true. We have to believe that what He said is right. We have to believe that He's who He claimed He was. We have to agree to the facts of, of Jesus Christ. And I just, my question automatically is, why should I believe Jesus? I mean, when he came around, I mean, people did that when he was walking the earth. Why should we believe in you? Why should we trust you? I think it's a great question. Why? Why should I? I I should repent because I know my own brokenness, but why should I believe that you're the solution? Why should I believe you're the son of God? Right? I'm just going to give you five good reasons. See, I don't think Jesus asks you to believe in him because it's crazy. Or he's expecting you to jump off some giant cliff. He, he, there's really good reasons why we believe in Jesus. Someone says is me, well, why do you believe Jesus? Man, I got five. I'm going to give you my top five. I don't just have five. I don't give you my top five, all right? Five reasons why I believe Jesus. First, Jesus is historical. He's historical. What does that mean? He, everything about him in his story is rooted in history. Okay, everything about him was written before 70 A.D. 70 A.D., Jerusalem is flattened. Everything gets changed. Really, the Bible, I've got a good argument that everything in the Bible was written before 70 A.D. And some people make an argument for Revelation. Okay, I'll listen to them but really everything about the Jewish and Christian world changed in 70 A.D. So everything about Jesus we have, and how do we know that it's all that? Because how accurate it is. You go to the Israel, and you can walk the places Jesus walked. You can see the towns that he lived in. You can, you can see the pool where he healed somebody. You can, you can go to the house in Capernaum where he lived. They found the house that Jesus lived in with Peter. And You know what's interesting? It's kind of an average house, but there's an extra room built on it. I wonder who the extra room was for. Oh, it was for Jesus because he made that his home base in Capernaum. You read the the towns, the cities, the people, Pontius Pilate, Quirinius was governor. You read all those little names, and they're all rooted in history. It's not make-believe. Okay, Palmyra, New York, right up here, they made up a religion, Joseph Smith. They just made it up, and none of it's historical. All the towns and cities and all the things they mention in the Book of Mormon are all fake Not one of them you can find historically. Why why am I not a Mormon? Because it's not historical. It's a bunch of gobbledygook invented by some guy. Jesus is historical. Doesn't mean the only reason you should believe in him, but he's rooted in history. The events of his life are proved inside the Bible and also outside the Bible. So that's one reason I believe in him. Second reason I believe in Jesus is that he transcends. Jesus transcends. What does that mean? Well, he's not limited to a certain group, right? This is a great verse in, uh, in Revelation. It says, With your blood you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's a great verse, isn't it? Jesus Christ purchased from every tribe. When was this written? Oh, somewhere in the first century. Did they know about aborigines in Australia? Did they know about North and South America? Did they know about anything outside this little Roman Empire, maybe the fringes? And this statement is made, and it says, "You will, and now, right today, the Bible is in 2,400 languages. 2,400 languages. That, that there are people right now, well, maybe not in this time zone, whatever, but sometime today, in the next 24 hours, There are people that you and I wouldn't even like begin to communicate with who are worshiping who? Jesus Christ. He transcends culture. He transcends language. You know the Jesus movie is the most translated movie? Not not anything recent, the, the 1979 version, but it gets translated into 1,800 languages. 1,800 languages, the most translated film, the most translated book, the Bible. And the next one, it's like laughable. How far distant the next one is. Why? He transcends race, culture, economics, poor, the wealthy, the in between. Think about it. it. Islam is limited to, to, to Arabic as this language. They didn't translate it in lots of languages like the Bible did. Uh, Judaism is, is really limited to the Jews. You think about Hinduism is really limited to people of Indian descent. You've got Christianity, which spreads like all over the globe. Show me another religion that transcends the way Christianity is the way Jesus does to all people. He does. So that's another reason I believe. It's the third reason I believe. He was promised. Right? Jesus was promised. Uh, nobody else was promised. Okay, Old Testament finished 400 B.C., Old Testament done. So 400 years before Jesus was born, all these predictions are made of Jesus, of the Messiah. And I'm just going to give you my top 10 real quick. Ready? He was going to be born in Bethlehem, really small little town, suburb of Jerusalem. Born of a virgin, that's pretty special. Lion of David, pretty special. Minister in Galilee, which is a small geographic area. That's where he was going to minister. perform miracles. Killed with criminals. Pierced hands and feet. That's pretty specific. Betrayed by a friend. Rise from the dead. And this is the kicker. In Daniel, if you do the math on his weeks, it says he's going to be revealed in about 30 A.D. When was Jesus revealed? About 30 A.D. So give me somebody else in history who was promised just in those top ten. There's other promises. I'm just giving you top ten. Nobody else in history is promised like that. So you have Jesus promised 400, very specifically, specific things, 400 years. So why do you believe Jesus? Why do you trust in him? That's my reason. He was promised. And I know this seems like an odd one. He was humble. Well, there's humble people, I know. But there's not too many humble people who are that great. Right? It's... it's It's easy to be humble when you stink. It's hard to be humble when you're great, right? That t-shirt, you know, it's hard to be humble when you're so great. That's actually true, right? Imagine if you're great. Imagine if you're great at something. Imagine if you're like the best and everybody fawns over you. Everybody wants your autograph. Everybody wants to talk to you. Everybody wants to think you're the best ever. Man, you go tell me that your, your flesh will rise up and you will start believing you're pretty amazing. How do I know this? I don't know, about... How many years have we recorded human history? <laughs> and then we meet somebody, right? We meet a sports star, somebody who's famous, and oh, they were so down to earth. We're like amazed. I can't believe he was just a regular guy. She was just a regular gal. We're amazed because greatness and humility are like almost diametrically opposed to each other. You got somebody who raises dead people Washing feet. You got somebody who who crowds come to follow, and he doesn't need an offering. He gives them lunch, right? He he doesn't want to take charge. He doesn't want to take over. He he, he constantly submits to the will of the Father. He takes little children, not the power brokers. Herod wants to see him. You know, he wants to see Jesus. He wants to see a miracle. He wants to talk to him. Jesus ah, let that fox go away. Give me, a little, give me a little kids. That just goes against everything. That culture, you understand, was an honor culture. And so we have been influenced by Christianity so much in the West that we actually honor humility. Nobody honored humility ever until Jesus showed up. Humility was like a dirty word. It was all about honor and prestige and your name being great. And Jesus constantly defers to the Father and stays humble in the midst of his greatness. The last one is is kind of obvious. He did the miraculous, right? And and I just, we say that and I think sometimes we forget how incredible that is that nobody, Buddha, Muhammad, you name it, they haven't done the miraculous like Jesus, and I'm just going to give you two verses, okay? Just two verses out of Matthew. They're not anybody's, you know, wall with a crochet. They're, there's nobody's bookmark. It's not anybody's memory verse, I'm going to bet. Today, you've never memorized these two verses. Look at these just two verses in Matthew 15. It says this, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute, and many others. You can get that picture, right? Jesus is standing there, and there's just lame, and there's just all these sick people pouring into Jesus, Right, And he laid them at his feet. And what did he do? And he healed them. Verse 31. And the people were amazed. That's got to be the understatement of the scripture. They were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Two verses in one of the four gospels beats everybody who's ever lived. Anybody who's ever lived? They bring all these sick, the crowds bring all these sick people to him, and he just heals them all. Why do I believe Jesus? I got five good reasons. And my response to people who wonder why I'm a Christian is always what do you got? Bring up your champion, kind of like David and Goliath, right? Bring up, bring up your champion. Who do you got? Let me let's let's put them in a match with Jesus. What do you got? Who's your guy? Who's your gal? Who's your savior? Who's your Lord? Who's the person you follow? You? A lot of people, that's their God. Is just them and their opinions. Oh, I think, I think, great. Can you do a miracle? I got a bunion. Can you heal the bunion? (laughs) Give me something. Why should I believe? People You trust yourself more than you trust Jesus. That's idiotic. But who do you got in history? Who do you got throughout the world? Who do you got currently? Oh, I love this guy or that guy or that gal or this gal. My goodness. Nothing compares to Jesus. So belief in Jesus is totally reasonable. Right? It's totally reasonable. And then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. A lot, I, one guy I read, he thinks this whole verse is like the, the gospel. It's the whole church, everything in one verse. right? Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He said, follow me. He didn't just say, agree with me. He said, follow me, right? He says to to, to Peter and Andrew and James and John, follow me. And they drop their nets, and they follow him. Now, if you don't have the other gospels, you think this is kind of crazy, right? Jesus is just kind of walking alongside the river going, hey, follow me. And they're like, we will follow. Drop. And you're like, I can't do that. I can't just go up to somebody and say, hey. Drop your stuff. Come follow me, right? Well, that's not. That's not the first time Jesus met them. Even in in my Bible, it says Jesus calls the first disciples. That's not actually where he meets them. You know that, right? The first five chapters of the Gospel of John give us the nine months or so of Jesus working with the disciples. Think of it this way. For, so, so remember John the Baptist is baptized, he's there goes the Lamb of God, and a bunch of disciples go follow him, and they find Peter. And Do you remember that whole scene? That's all before this. So what it is is Jesus develops a relationship with these guys, and he go, they go from being weekend warriors, right? They go down to the temple, the healing of an old man's son, the woman at the well in Samaria. These are all things that are happening before this moment. The, the, the wine at the wedding at Cana, right? It says they, the disciples put their faith. So, so they're, they're believing and they're, they're like National Guard disciples. They just do it on the weekends, maybe one week here and there at a festival. And then he's coming along the river and he, the, the lake and he says, guys, now it's time full time. I want you to up your, up your commitment full time. Follow me. And that's why they dropped everything and, and, and it was just, like if he wants us full time, we're going full time. It's a lot different than being a believer versus being a follower. Right? I mean, repent. That's the fr- I'm going the wrong direction. I need to turn my life around. I have to believe that Jesus Christ is the one with the answers. Who do I believe? If I'm wrong, if I've been wrong my whole life, if, if what I've thought about life and what's right and what's wrong has been wrong, if, I, if I'm a sinner, if I'm incapable, if I'm a wretch like Paul calls himself, what should I do? I believe on Christ and he's the, he's the person to guide me and show me, right? But then he says, follow me, which involves changing your whole life. Believing somebody and then letting them walk away, it, it, it's not, it's faith, but it's, it's, James calls it kind of dead faith, right? It's not faith that can save you, right? If you're just a fan of Christ, you're not saved because faith, the, the faith in Jesus that rises to the level, right, it, it is a faith, but it's not saving faith. Saving faith means there's going to be a change in my life. There's going to be a change. Things are going to be different. He kept saying the word follow, follow, follow. Is the Jesus you believe in worth following? And if he's not worth following, can that Jesus save you? Is he worth, like, say, it, it, and that's what the disciples, they came to this conclusion, like, man, he's worth following. He's worth more than being a fisherman, more than hanging out with my family, more than doing the things. I, he's worth it, and it cost him. In the Old Testament, there's this great you know, story of, of Ahab you know, and, and the prophets of Baal and, you know, and Elijah. It's, if you haven't read it, 1 Kings 18, read it. It's a great story. Famous if you've been around church for a while. But it, and, and there's this thing where they gather all the prophets of Baal and they have uh, Elijah on the other side. It's one verse, you know, like 800. Asherah and prophets, of, and they're all together. They say, let's, let's have a contest. And I love what he says to the Israelites. He says, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In other words, they believed in God. They believed in Baal. They believed in all these gods, and they kind of, You know, whatever they needed, they went to the different gods. And that's kind of like us, right? Ah, For Jesus, Easter, Christmas, you know, maybe for forgiveness, I go to him. But for other stuff, you know, hey, to make myself feel good, I do this or that. Other things I do in life are other Baals. They're other things. And so Elijah says, you got to choose. You can't serve God and Baal. you got to choose God or Baal and then follow them. Change your life. Change the way you do things. Follow God. Powerful passage, Jesus in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. My my sheep know my voice and and they follow me. There's a response. My sheep follow me. I give them eternal life. Who? The people that follow him. Not just anybody. I I give those who follow me eternal life. And they shall never perish, nor will anyone snatch them out of my hand. We sometimes memorize 28, forgetting about the idea that it's got to be people who follow. And so, just a few questions for us today. A few questions. Have you repented? recently. I mean, have you ever gotten broken over your sin? And maybe you're not trying hard enough to be good. Because I'm telling you, if you try really hard to be good, you got something to repent for. Because then the more and more you try to be good, the the, the flesh and the devil and the world are right there trying to get you to stop. Are you broken over your sin? Or do you focus on everybody else's sin? Are you focused on what you're doing wrong and getting right before God? Folks, it's not just for the unbeliever. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, it's for you. There has to be an initial repentance and admission, I've been wrong. I'm guessing there's somebody here that's got something, maybe all of us, (laughs) that needs repenting. That means... I need to be broken over my sin, admit God is right, and then I've got to change. I've got to seek help. I've got to seek some way to get this thing fixed in me. I can't just toy with it and think God overlooks it, and you're carrying around some shame and some guilt, and you know it's tweaked right now. You've got to deal with it. The message of Christ to us is to repent, to turn around. Do you see yourself as good and lovable, or bad and yet loved? It's a huge question to ask. Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible or someone else? The Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of your creation. See, we can all make up a Jesus that fits us and fits what we like and our opinions and our, you know, I, I Reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, he, I love this on politics. He says, We read the Bible often to confirm our opinions about things. So we want Jesus to affirm our views instead of allowing Jesus to shape our views. And if you go to the scripture honestly with that kind of attitude, folks, we're all going to be stretched because everyone's wrong. Right, left, and in the middle. We're all wrong at some point and we allow Christ to come in. But do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? I mean, do you really believe him? And is he, are you a fan or are you a follower? Are you cheering him on and watching him do things and want to hear about his great acts and his great works or are you you going to get down there and be like him and follow him? Jesus, anyone that would come after me must pick up his cross. What does Christianity cost you? If it doesn't cost you anything, you can't be a follower, right? It, it can't. I have I've discipled a guy, uh, and he's a new Christian. He's lost complete relationship with his family. Not, not they haven't kicked him out, the, but he he can't get along with any of his family anymore because he follows Christ, and they think he's nuts. It's cost him. He got saved and radically saved and, and repented of his sin, and and it cost him a lot. Cost him financially. Cost him his his. his Relationship with spirits, and it's even cost him some of the drive to kind of become the top at work because he's kind of his priorities have shifted. I'm watching Christianity cost this person stuff. Does it cost you anything? It cost Peter, it cost Andrew, and James, and John, it cost them. Does your faith in Jesus significantly impact your life? Are you like me who was just you know, I had U2 CDs, I had, you know, music and. I kind of listen to their stuff and, if you know. Or are you like my other friend who, who, man, he committed his whole life to that band? Are you someone who's committed your life to Christ? Is it changing you? So I just, that's a question I want you to ask. How has Christ's, how has his life changed my life? And how is it changing my life? Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for your amazing love for us. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, if it wasn't for your grace and your forgiveness, none of us could stand, Lord. Lord, forgive me, forgive us for creating a Jesus that isn't the Jesus that is. It might be the Jesus we want. Lord, may we be conformed to your image and not conform you to ours. I I know there's folks here struggling with sin. You know what it is. They know what it is. God, I pray for repentance. There's people in this room struggling with faith. They're struggling whether they believe you or not. God, I I pray that we would start believing you, Lord God, so that it would radically change how we walk every day. I'm so thankful that these folks came on a Sunday morning in the summer, to hear your word, Lord? I pray that you would work in their lives. Work in our lives in transforming ways, Lord God, so that you might get the praise and the honor and the glory. Amen.